0: Thanks for listening to this sermon from the Image Church. Find out more about us and our weekly services at imagejesus.com.
1: So with that being said, uh, I want to invite my friend Aaron Ventura to come up. Why don't you guys welcome Aaron to the stage. Hold on, Bishop, we're getting your pulpit here. Thanks. All right, so... He's outdoing us. He's the first guy to wear a tie preaching here at the Image Church, so uh, we can welcome that. One and done. One and done. Check check. You really are. I think you're the first person to wear a tie. No, maybe I didn't. No, I don't think I did on Easter. I don't even know. But you're probably much the first. It's got the clip and everything. It's legit. So. But it's um, a real.
0: It's a real. T- I really tied this. It's okay, not it's a clip not a clip-on clip on tie. Yeah. Okay. Just want to clarify. Yeah. Good. Good.
1: <laughs> I like it. I like it. Um, so I want to brag on Aaron for just a second. Um, Jesus has been really, really good to do our church over the last year and a half that we've been going. So we started meeting here last January with like 10 of us, and he's been really good to provide every step along the way. And one of the ways that God has provided for our church is by literally um, sending a guy from Seattle, Washington, all the way to Jacksonville, um, who barely knew me, okay, to say, I want to I be a part of that church plant in Jacksonville I want to uh, be trained to pastor, maybe plant a church one day, and I'll do whatever it takes to be there. And Aaron uh, literally raised funds uh, from people in Seattle to come on staff, and he's basically a full, not basically, more than a full-time staff member of our church that we don't pay, that a bunch of people in Seattle pay for him to be here and serve here in this church. And Aaron did a ton of work, months, like how many months More months than I hope. (laughs) About a year. About a year of actually working a a full-time job and then raising money on the side to actually get here. And so he's done a ton of work to be here, and he's been here since January, right, of of 2014. And there's no way we could be doing what we're doing uh, without Aaron. He serves here. Day in and day out, and on Saturdays teaching a Bible class. Um, and if you guys know Aaron, he's the first one to say, "I got that. I can help with that." Super humble, and you're about to see super gifted. Um, and if he's not here working, he's at home probably reading. Um, and he's uh, sorry, um, but we're praying. We're like, "How do you meet girls with a book in your room?" I don't know, Aaron. So um, we're praying for Aaron. Right. On that right. sorry, right. I don't know, man. I don't know. Sorry, I'm helping you out. So yeah. thanks. And, uh, <laughs> Thanks, man. Um, Yeah. Let me pray for Aaron real quick for forgiveness, too. All right, let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we love you, and we're thankful uh, that you love us. And one of the ways that you show us that you love us is you sent help. And you've sent Aaron to us to help us and encourage us and to strengthen us. And so I pray you'd fill him with the Holy Spirit to to serve us again right now and to worship you and to glorify you and to make um, you the centerpiece of what we do here um, this morning. So... We're grateful for Aaron. Pray for more support for Aaron that would come in as he goes back to Seattle in a few weeks that you would provide even more supporters for him to come back, even more supported here financially. So help us um, uh, right now by filling us with the Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. That's Amen. It.
0: Amen. Can you hear me out there all right? Good. When I actually met Matt, he said we, I hardly knew him. Um, he calls me up. Is this Aaron? Yes, this is Aaron alright we're going to meet tomorrow at this like, burger place in the university district. And he told me, he goes, I just want to let you know up front that we're not going to be buddies. We're not going to be buddy-buddy, <laughs> wear matching cardigans. And he was right. We don't wear matching cardigans. But Matt has become a good friend and an awesome mentor to me. Um, when I was in Seattle raising support, Um, it was a really hard um, thing. I felt very isolated. At one point, I kind of hit this really low spot, and I remember I didn't want to tell Matt, I didn't want to tell him, but I finally got the guts to call him, and I don't remember what he said to me, but it was something like, Jesus loves me, and, right, it's pretty simple, but something changed in me that day, and I haven't been the same since, and so, Matt, I'm indebted to you for more than I can say. The six months that I've been here have been an enormous blessing to me. So I want to thank Matt and honor him for that. So um, I just want to let you guys know, the last time I was on a stage like this, I was rapping. I, I, I know by the looks of it, you wouldn't think that I am a rapper. Yeah, yes, I know. The guy with the tie. I, I would wear a chain, you know, a necklace. And it, it, was, it was bad. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, on Saturdays, I teach this class, and I teach for like two hours, so I'm just warning you, um, this could go long, and uh, I just want to, you know, full disclaimer, if you need to get up and leave, it's okay, uh, I'll chase you down. <laughs> right? See, I like this talking back to me kind of thing, right? Can we, can we do a little more of this? All right, all right. Uh, so we are in the last week in our series in Jonah, and so Before I kind of summarize just what has happened in the book of Jonah, I want to actually go back to the beginning of the story as a whole. So I teach this class called Gospel in All of Scripture, and what we do is we talk about the big story from Genesis to Revelation and ever after. So I want to take you guys, what happened actually in the history of the world, in the history of Israel before Jonah came up on the scene? So it starts a little something like this. You guys probably know. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? So he creates everything that's in it, the skies above, the waters deep, from the greatest dinosaur, dragons, I believe in those kind of things, to the tiniest insect. God creates it all. The trees, the mountains, the winds, the waves, all creation in happy communion with its creator. Then enter us, mankind. Right? We know about Adam and Eve. And God commissions man to be fruitful and multiply and to flourish on the earth. Man, as an image bearer of God, is meant to rule creation. But man does what? He disobeys God. And the cosmos, heaven and earth, are torn apart. Sin and death enters the world, corrupting everyone and everything. So now that, that thing that we feel, that ache in our bones... It heralds back to that fateful moment in the Garden of Eden some thousands years ago. But the thing is, the story doesn't stop there. God, in his infinite wisdom, had actually planned this out from the beginning and thus began the greatest story that the world has ever known. It is the story of God saving the world and showing off the praise of his glorious grace to man. Amen. 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 So we see God commissions mankind, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. But here's the problem. Now that man's evil, when he fills the earth, he just fills it with evil. So after this period where people are living for way longer than you or I will ever live, right, hundreds and hundreds of years, God says they just get more and more wicked. They just get more wise in how evil they can be. And so God sends a flood and destroys the entire world, except for eight people. So God kind of reboots the universe. He starts over with this guy named Noah, and he gives him the same commission. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. After Noah, God makes a promise, a covenant, with a man named Abraham. Maybe you've heard about him. God swears to Abraham at the cost of his own life, that the entire world would be blessed in the seed of Abraham, and that Abraham's offspring would be as numerous as the stars above. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons who eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. Right? So that's how Israel formed. A guy named Jacob changes his name, 12 sons, 12 tribes. And then over a period of about 400 years in Egypt, these 12 tribes become the nation of Israel. After 400 years in Egypt, God sends Moses to bring his people up out of the land. He commissions Moses to go do something, to bring Israel out to the promised land. So the nation of Israel is supposed to be a blessing to the world and the surrounding nations. God gives them the law, the Ten Commandments. Why does he do that? Well, so that they can be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth so that humans can flourish. But instead of being a light to the world and a blessing to the nations, Israel succumbs to the darkness of the world's ways and adopts the pagans' lifestyle, even outdoing the pagans at their own evil, sacrificing their children, doing the very things that God said, Do not do this, or I will judge you. But God's plan to bless the nations, to save the world, will not be thwarted by some rebellious Israelites, right? This is God, merciful and gracious. So God raises up for Israel this man named David. You've heard of King David, right? And the Israelite monarchy hits its peak at David's son Solomon. And finally, the nations come to Jerusalem. They come to see the splendor and hear the wisdom of Solomon. But the thing about Solomon is, even in all his wisdom, he disobeys God. And after him, he has his sons and the kingdom is divided in two. And then king after king after king is evil and more evil and more evil. And here we come to where Jonah shows up on the scene. So that's kind of the bigger context. And in the meantime, the question still lingers. What about the promise that God made to Abraham? What about him saving the world? So, three weeks in Jonah, let me run through each chapter real quick, bring you up to speed, and then we're going to run into this thing. So in chapter 1, we saw God commissions this guy named Jonah to go to Nineveh, his arch enemy, this pagan nation, and to announce judgment on them. But Jonah disobeys God. He hops on a ship and goes to the opposite direction. Jeremy Shirky brought this home for us. Three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. In chapter 2, Jay Harris was up here and he talked about Jonah praying to God from the belly of a whale. So in chapter 2, Chapter 2, Jonah dies, or at least has this very near-death experience, and declares salvation belongs to the Lord. So God actually saves his rebellious, racist, runaway prophet. This is the God that is writing this big story. So the fish vomits him up upon dry land, and then God recommissions Jonah. This was last week with Cam Triggs, right? God recommissions Jonah to go to Nineveh again, and this time Jonah obeys. He's getting it now. He proclaims, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the entire city, from the cattle to the king, fasts in sackcloth, no food, no drink. The city repents, and God relents." I still got my rhyme, my rhyme's good. Yeah. So now we come to our text. After all that long introduction. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, if you don't, we are gonna have it on, on the screen behind me. Go to Jonah chapter four. And if you have a uh, you know one of these natural Bibles, not on the a phone, Jonah's like there, right? So it's kind of like to the right of the middle. It's like a four-chapter book. It's like two pages in my Bible. So I'll give you some time to get there, unless you guys are all on your smartphones. It is what it is. All right, I'm reading in Jonah chapter 4. good? Here we go. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, And merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, um, we want to see this story glorify you. We want to see the story of Jonah showing the grace of Christ. God, would you open our hearts Would you open our eyes and our minds to behold the beauty of Jesus Christ in this story. You alone are mighty to save. You alone are merciful and gracious with outstretched arms saying, come, come to me, all who labor. So God, help me to communicate rightly your word to my friends. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have you ever had beef with somebody? Do people still call it beef? Jay, you still... All right, it's been a while. I try to keep up on the rap blogs with what the, the terms are. No, excuse <laughs> I, I had beef one time. In high school, I got into a little tiff with somebody that ended with, well, it ended with a brick through my window. So I was in high school, I'm young, I'm dumb, and I'm a rapper. <laughs> okay? I'm in Seattle, I'm a rapper. And I have beef with this guy. So, so what had happened was, uh, i got to blur some of the details, but my, my little sister, she's like the most beautiful girl in the world. This boyfriend of hers did something really messed up, okay? He did something really messed up. So if you're a brother out there and you got a sister, we have like this, i got to protect her, right? i got to defend her honor, you know? Like, let's go get him. Let's go get him. So this guy does this thing to her. It's very bad. And I'm pissed, okay? And (laughs) I edited it out. so, Uh, So I'm very angry. I'm, as to use the Bible's word, exceedingly angry at this guy, right? And so this is the days of MySpace. And... I know, I'm dating myself. I'm dating myself. (laughs) I'm not 17. Okay. Um, So this is the days of MySpace. So like the worst thing you could do to someone is like hack their MySpace profile. And I had like 50-some thousand plays on my MySpace music page, which is quite a lot. And so I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do what I know how to do. And that's write a diss song against this guy. (laughs) This is... (laughs) I'm pretty sure it's on the internet somewhere, but I, side note, I went on MySpace a few months ago and I was like, oh my goodness, these pictures, oh my goodness, this music, how is this still up there? Forgot my password, so I had to like write MySpace a letter, fill out this form just to get them to delete my MySpace, so sorry, you guys won't be able to find it now, sorry. So I write this disc record, okay? And this disc record is like, just ruthless. I have gunshots in the song. <laughs> He, okay, I got to give you one of the lines, right? So you know those star tattoos that some people have? So he had like these two star tattoos like on him. And I have this line where it's like, um, I'll like shoot two at you. You could call that shooting for the stars. It was something like, right? like, it's like, like, who says this stuff, right? Gunshots. So I, I'm climbing. This wasn't in the, this wasn't in my manuscript. So. This guy, about a year later, I get a call. It's like 2 a.m. I'm up to no good still with someone else this time. And and on the other line says, hey, if you don't come out front of your house right now and fight me, I'm going to throw a brick through your window. (laughs) Hang it up. Two in the morning, right? For one, what am I doing awake? And the person I'm with says, "Uh, I don't think you should go outside. I think they're just probably drunk dialing you. Okay. And I think, yeah, you're probably right. No one's actually going to throw a brick through my window. I live in the suburbs. I'm in a nice neighborhood. Okay. Okay. So about an hour later, I hear this big... <laughs> and I'm like, oh. Grab a baseball bat. Go outside. And then these two kids, you know, uh, running around, around the corner. The worst part was my dad was, like, sleeping in that room where, where the brick was thrown. So, needless to say, I had beef with this dude right? I had beef with this guy. And I actually had a, I actually, oh, I forgot about this. I recorded a music video. So there's not just one diss song, there's two diss songs. I had a follow-up to it, whether it had a music video or driving around the school parking lot, (laughs) swerving cars, you know? And I'm I'm just like, probably like throwing money out, I don't know, just doing stupid rapper stuff, okay? (laughs) What's the point of this story, right? I had beef with this guy. And God, I was a Christian, by the way, during all of this. This is the worst part. I know that I'm supposed to forgive my enemies. I know I'm supposed to love them. But this guy had really done some messed up stuff to the girl who I love more than anything in the world. You touch my sister, I will kill you. And God did something in my heart. He he basically said, look, Aaron, you've done a lot of worse things than, than this guy, actually. I'm like, well, yeah, I have, kind of. And... I forgave you, but I don't want to forgive this guy. Brick through the window, MySpace drama, our whole counties are against each other, and right, schools, like, you know. But I actually went to this guy, and I saw him, like, at church years later, and it still was, like, on my soul, like, I need to talk to this guy, because I did some really horrible things to him. And so I actually reconciled with him and said, hey, like, I forgive you. And I I just want to tell you, I was being an idiot, (laughs) acting crazy, writing diss songs. Like, will you forgive me? And man, how freeing was that? How freeing is it? If you got beef, right? So we come to Jonah, right? Jonah's got beef with Nineveh. And he has a more righteous cause than I, right? These Assyrians, these Ninevites have probably killed people that he knows, right? This guy didn't kill my sister. (laughs) Who knows what would happen? But Jonah has this real beef with Nineveh. God sends him to go there. So can you really blame him that he doesn't want to go? What we see in the story of Jonah is a microcosm of what has been happening in the world since the fall of man. God commissions someone to do something. Adam, Moses, Noah, whoever, Abraham. He commissions them to do something that's actually going to bring about healing, restoration, salvation to the world. But the man disobeys. The man doesn't do it. So God executes judgment, and then through that judgment... He shows mercy and grace nonetheless. So if you read the Old Testament, you see this over and over again. So before we jump into this text, I want you to just sit with this question in your mind. Who do I got beef with? Who is your Nineveh? Who is that person? Who do you hold a grudge against? Who, if you guys are both in the same room, it's kind of like, oh, let's go to another coffee shop, right? Or wherever you guys hang out. I don't know. I don't hang out in coffee shops. So who has wronged me so deeply that I could never forgive them? Who do you wish evil upon? Or maybe not wish evil. You just kind of want to see them get what's coming to them. They've been running their mouth, and you want to see them just get it, right? You know what I'm talking about. Who is your Nineveh? Who is that person? Let's jump into verse 1 here. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. So, what displeased Jonah? The answer is in uh, verse 10 of chapter 3 that God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to Nineveh. He did not do it. So, Jonah is angry because God is merciful to his enemies, to those people he's got beef with. Verse 2 and he prayed to the Lord. Jonah does this. He says, O Lord, Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Hold up here. So Jonah is a theologian. Jonah is a teacher of the people of Israel. He's one of God's mouthpieces. He's one of... God's prophets, and here he actually quotes one of the great confessions in the Old Testament that's found in Exodus uh, 34, 6-7, that the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Jonah knows his Bible. How scary is that? That you could actually know the mercy and grace of God, and then when it comes to those people you got beef with, suddenly you're like, kill them dead. So who is the Lord? Who is this God? If God were to write a dictionary, if you were to Google God, Exodus 34, 6, and 7 is like the definition he would would give us. It's like the most explicit definition of his character. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. Scholars debate over why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, right? Scholars debate about everything. Well, it tells us right here, I made haste to flee because I knew that you are a gracious God. Jonah runs because he knows God. Do you see how backwards this whole thing is? Do you see how deep-rooted Jonah's anger, bitterness, malice towards his enemies is? Because these things blind us, right? Have you ever gotten so angry that you just say something, you lash out in the moment, and immediately after, like, it comes out, you're like, oh, wish I didn't say that. Wish I didn't say that. We call it getting hot, right? You got hot. You got angry. Maybe you guys don't call it that. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sure you guys have said some stupid things, whether to 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 your wife or to your husband or kids, to your dad. I once cussed out my dad. That did not go well. That's like one of the worst things I probably have ever done in my life. Wow. God, God, forgive me. But what we see here in verse two is that Jonah has received grace. He knows. The gospel, the good news, the graciousness of God, but his actions show that his heart actually doesn't really get it, doesn't really get it. Verse three, Jonah's still talking here. He says, therefore now, O Lord, therefore meaning in light of this or because of this, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So because God has relented from destroying Nineveh, Jonah, the drama queen, says, it's so bad, I could just die, right? He sounds like a, like a junior high girl who just got her smartphone taken away. Hey, come up here, bring, stop texting during class, come up here, oh, I could just die. <laughs> this, this, this is Jonah, right? You, la- you laughing, you laughing. We should be laughing because it's absurd, right? Jonah wanted God to wipe Nineveh off the map. Jonah wanted God to drop a nuclear bomb on them. Jonah wanted God to pull an Egypt part two and just plagues here, plagues there, kill them all. He wanted God to pull a desolation on Nineveh. And when Jonah doesn't get what he wants, well, what happens? My life's not worth living. I didn't get what I want. Kill me now. Right? People actually have these little phrases, right? Kill me now. (laughs) what Jonah's being serious though he's saying really God this is how this is what happens when you got beef when you got a deep-seated bitterness and anger in your heart it blinds you to do irrational crazy stupid stuff and we laugh at Jonah but the truth is we all have some Jonah in our hearts right right so, so how many, think about it, how many divorces become wars to spite the other person, right? They wronged you, they cheated, they lied, they changed, or maybe they didn't change, and now all you want to do is see them get what's coming to them. But there's no winners, right? There's no winners in divorce. Think getting the house is going to satisfy your desire for justice? Ah, all is right in the world. Or how much do we enjoy watching the politicians in that party, right or left, one of those parties, not our party, but that party, make a fool of themselves and get blasted in the media? We take pleasure in watching such and such president, senator, congressman, leader, whoever, make a fool of themselves, right? In your workplace, maybe you're feeling underappreciated, maybe you're feeling overlooked, and then your boss chooses them for the promotion instead of you they get a little favor and suddenly you're kind of like bitterness creeps into your heart and you want to actually see that person screw up on the next project you see these things that cause us emotional distress and consternation are the things that we have yet to give to Jesus Parents, how embarrassing is it when your kids be acting crazy, disobedient, and you actually lash out at them, and then you take pleasure in punishing them and seeing them get the penalty for their error, right? The rod will drive it far from him. That, that'll do it. It's the same malice. It's the same ill will. Think about this, um, I'll say men, but I know there's women who are sports fans too, but men, why do we love to see our rivals just lose? Like, bad? I'm from Seattle. I have a few stories to tell you about my beloved Seahawks, right? So the Seahawks, they stomped all over the Denver Broncos in the Super Bowl. Glory to God, hallelujah, a championship comes to Seattle. But I actually, as much as I rejoiced on that day, I wasn't really rejoicing because they beat the Broncos. What was actually a bigger satisfaction to me was the week prior, when we beat the San Francisco 49ers. You see, I don't like quarterbacks that kissing their biceps and stuff, Colin Kaepernick, right? See, I, I don't like the, those 49ers, so I wanted to see them go down and go down hard. So when Richard Sherman, back of the end zone, tips the ball, and then, what's-his-name, catches it, and, the, and everyone knows the game's over. My heart is bursting at the seams. I'm giving glory to Jesus. I'm saying, "Thank you, God. My enemies have fallen in a glorious fashion in front of all the world to see." I know you love me now. Right? But we rejoice at others' misfortune. It's kind of a silly example, but it's the same thing. It's the same root sin in the heart. Ladies, men too, why we gossip about one another? Why are you always talking that talk? No, Rihanna. (laughs) You know. The things we whisper in our hearts about one another, those things, those judgments, those little slants, why is she wearing that? Why is she doing this? Why is she talking? God knows that. He hears the whispers of your heart. You see, we are all a bunch of Jonahs. We laugh at Jonah and we're laughing at ourselves. Is Jesus enough? If you never find that God who ticks off every box on your ridiculous list? If you never make it as an artist? Are you going to spend your life bitter at God? I prayed, I asked. You said you love me a lot of you guys are harboring things against other people and against God and you've never even verbalized them to him have you ever been there where you just does God really love me does that person really love me but you've never said anything it's just kind of simmers in the bottom of your belly it's okay to get real with God because he's more jealous for your joy in him than you are. The reason why we got beef with people and we want to see them fall down is because we think that's actually going to make us happy. It's actually going to satisfy something. And that just shows that we're actually really insecure. We actually really need a savior. Which is a tough thing to admit, right? Weak people admit stuff. So, Jonah has held this grudge against Nineveh probably his whole life. He probably was raised to hate the Assyrians. He might even be more justified in his hatred than us. He doesn't trust that God knows best. What if Nineveh got saved, right? What if this was the beginning of a revival and a restoration of Israel? What if this was the means by which God was actually going to save the world, and what about us, Image Church? What if God wants to actually save everyone in Jacksonville, but wants to do it through that church? Right? That hyper-religious church, the we at Image Church, we got the gospel, we really get in it, we're missional and all that stuff. Right? What if God actually wants to bring revival and reformations through, through that church? What if he wants to get the gospel in there and then conversions and baptisms start happening? Are we going to front and be like, Huh? God, what's up? Do this little thought exercise with me. Um, Imagine there's a button in front of you, okay? And uh, for you creatives out there, I think that this will really get to it. I, as an artist, I, I feel this pain. Imagine there's a button in front of you, and when you press that button, everyone in the world becomes 100 times as talented, and you only go 10 times as talented. Okay? So, me as a rapper, everything's about competition, I'm making music, what if I press this button and every rapper becomes a hundred times better, but I only get ten times better? Do I have... I gotta think about that for a sec. Let's try this with money. What if, when I press the button, everybody else gets a hundred times as wealthy, and I only go like ten times as wealthy? Are you just... Gladly pressing the button? Or do you kind of... That's the thing. That thing is what has to die in you. That thing, that covetousness, that dissatisfaction with what God has given you, that has to die. So what is it? Who is your Nineveh? The Lord said to Jonah... Do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? Now, as readers of this story, the answer is an obvious, of course not. Right? Of course Jonah shouldn't be angry. Look at how gracious God has been to Jonah. And now he's acting like a selfish brat. This is the blindingness of hatred. This is what racism and nationalism and ethnocentrism does to people. Ethnocentrism... My ethnicity, who I am, my heritage is the center of the universe. That's what that means. Thinking your race, heritage, or whatever is superior to others is like one of the most ridiculous things. Why? Because people are boasting about something that they had nothing to do with. You didn't choose to be born. You didn't choose to inherit. That's the point of an inheritance. You don't choose it. How absurd is Jonah's hatred? God blesses a nation. We've seen this in the U.S. God blesses a nation, a generation passes, and everyone forgets that everything is actually a gift from God. Suddenly we feel entitled to safety and security on our borders, right? Suddenly we feel entitled to the best place in the world order, right? We are 1-800-555-whatever. One. We're number one. America, go us. We feel entitled to a job, a promotion, a livable wage. We feel entitled to government handouts and health coverage for our kids, all the while forgetting the God who gives us life and breath and everything to enjoy. As a nation, corporately, we have said to God, we want your stuff, just you stay, you know, in, in the home. Just, we relegate you to the private sphere, but please keep blessing us. And now everything metastasizes, has fallen apart, right? Resentment, unforgiveness, this I'm the center of the universe kind of thing makes your life really, really small and very petty. And the worst thing it does is it makes God's grace look really, really small. The glory of God is diminished when we throw shade, when we do not forgive our enemies, when we are trying to be the center of the universe, when we receive grace and we don't want to give it, God's glory is diminished. So who is Nineveh? Who do you need to forgive? Verse 5, here we go. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So he's exceedingly angry in verse 1 because God saves Nineveh, and now he's exceedingly glad because God saved him from the heat. So you see, God is being like super patient with Jonah. How many of us, if Jonah was our kid, we'd be like, yo, this kid's in timeout. This needs a whooping. He's just an ungrateful little, right? I've done all this stuff and acting crazy. So what's God going to do here? Let's see what God does. He's going to teach Jonah a little lesson, okay? He's going to try to show Jonah through this little plant deal how irrational he's being, okay? This is the fatherly discipline on Jonah. God sends Jonah this living umbrella. Matt threw it away. We had had a little plan up here. I don't need a problem. So God is going to grow shade while Jonah wants to throw shade. (laughs) We just make the title of the sermon. I didn't have one. Growing shade and throwing shade. You guys know what throwing shade is? Throwing shade is, you know, me writing a diss song on someone. I'm throwing a little darkness. I'm, I'm throwing some shade on them. Let me shine. No, I'm going to throw some shade on that. That's what throwing shade is. So Jonah's throwing shade on Nineveh, and God's growing shade for him. He's, he's saving him while Jonah's harboring this grudge. God is living up to his name, his character. Jonah confessed it himself. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger, and he's abounding in steadfast love. Jonah is the exact opposite in this situation. Jonah receives grace, but doesn't want to give it. He gets mercy, but doesn't want to give it. Jonah is exceedingly angry. God is very slow to anger. The only thing that Jonah is abounding in is steadfast tomfoolery. Jonah, Jonah is all right I'll give you. Some. Jonah is only faithful in his grumbling. While God is faithful in his kindness. So Christian, how are you going to receive grace and mercy from Jesus, but not give it to your Nineveh? God came a long way to save you, didn't he? Came a long way. What's making that phone call, right? What's going to that person before communion? It takes you humbling yourself. It takes abandoning your pride at the cross and humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God. You see, this is where grace messes with us, right? Grace is this whole counterintuitive thing. It doesn't make sense. What would make sense is God tells Jonah, go announce judgment on Nineveh. In 40 days I'm gonna destroy him, and then in 40 days he destroys him. End of story. But what about if he did that at the beginning of the story? What if when God said, Adam, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then he did, God just killed him right on the spot? We wouldn't be here. This is what grace feels like. You see, we love justice when it's them who are getting it. But then, oh, how we beg and desire mercy when we are in the wrong, right? So, this is what grace feels like grace feels like coming clean, confessing your sin, telling God, I deserve nothing but punishment and wrath from you. I am unworthy. Have mercy on me, a sinner. You know, there was a real scumbag, a tax collector, a Nineveh-type dude. He couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. He was so in tune with the reality of his own sin, he called out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And you know what Jesus says about that guy? He went down to his house justified. That's what grace feels like. Because if you think you deserve grace, if you feel entitled to blessing, grace, mercy, you actually nullify it right a romans 11:1 says but if it is by grace it is no longer on the basis of works otherwise grace would no longer be grace paul's making a very obvious point to these people these people this is why grace makes no sense because we are used to working x amount of hours and getting y amount of dollars okay we are used to you do me a favor and i'll do you a favor trans this is actually a transaction Okay, I do something, I get something in return. But grace actually blows up these categories. Grace says you can't do anything. Jesus says, I'm going to just give this to you. I'm going to just give you this. Jesus says you are a bunch of helpless dead sinners under the wrath of God. If I give you what you deserve, it'd be like the catechism, eternity in hell but I'm going to take that penalty on myself. I'm going to die so that you can die, right? Jesus didn't die so we could live. Jesus died so we could die. Jesus came out the grave so we can come out the grave. Jesus lives so that we can live. Grace says, I'm going to save you. I'm going to grab you, and you can't stop me. Grace is crazy like that. So God has mercy on Jonah by giving him a little plant, and then God takes it away to show Jonah how irrational he he is being. Verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. So, the climax of the book is kind of like in chapter two when Jonah's in the belly of the whale and he he says this great confession salvation belongs to the Lord. I'm saved. Yay. And then God has some questions for Jonah. This is how the book ends it ends with a question. God says, You pity the plant, you pity a plant. I have no pity on plants. In fact, I hope worms come and kill the plants. I step on plants all the time and feel no pity. I run in the ground. I don't care. Jonah pities a plant. This is crazy. But here's the thing. He pities the plant because it was serving him. It was doing something for him, right? God was growing shade. It's like, oh, I like this plant. Jonah is so self-absorbed. He only cares about himself. He's so angry that the plant died that he wants to die. All right? so, so can you imagine uh, going over to your neighbor and your neighbor's like just fuming, angry? He's like, oh my, I could just die right now. And you're like, sir, something happened? You'd think like his whole world fall apart. And He's like, well, I could just die because this shrub in my backyard got eaten by an insect.
1: <laughs> be like <laughs> who,
0: who does that who's this dramatic <laughs> let me ask you a question how much is one person worth Jesus said, Jesus said you could gain the whole world and lose your soul how much is, how much is one soul worth How much are you worth? How much is the city of Jacksonville worth? How much is your next door neighbor worth? Go ahead, put a put a price on him. Hundred dollars? Hundred million dollars? A gajillion dollars? (laughs) You, You could stack up anything on the scale with one person. And that thing that you compared it with becomes worthless. Because people are made in the image of God. God is infinitely valuable. And so we, eternal beings, are of infinite worth. But we want to front about plants. You got some plants? You got you got some things that making your life real good, and if it's taken away, hmm. Are your coworkers worth more than your reputation at the office? Having a house party, right? We go to these house parties. It's kind of costly to let people in your house. I have this saying: People smell. People are dirty. Why don't you coming up in my clean house? Well, it's kind of in my relatively clean house and getting it relatively more dirty, right? It's expensive to build relationships. It's expensive for me to go across the street to talk to someone that I have like no common interest with. Talk. Don't talk the same way. Don't wear the same stuff. It's emotionally exhausting. And what am I saying when I refuse to do that? When I refuse to go to my Nineveh, I'm saying you're not worth more than a plant. You're not worth more than my comfort. You're not worth more than the money it's going to cost for me to buy food this week. How much are people worth, Image Church? Is Jacksonville worth it? You see, our actions show what we actually consider functionally to be most valuable. So we can affirm all together here. Can we say, people are very valuable? Okay. But then when you do a little, uh, you know, self-critique, look at, my, uh, look at my expenditures, right? Pull up my Bank of America account. See what I spend my money on. Would, it, would that show that? I think people are the most valuable thing. (laughs) What about all, if you just were to divide my day up into blocks of hours that I spend doing X or Y or B, or whatever, would would you be looking at that, be able to see, ah, Aaron really thinks that people are super, super valuable. That hurts, (laughs) that hurts. You see, unless Jesus has grace for me, my my neighbors might never meet Jesus. I might never grow the stones to go over there and talk to him, invite him to a house party, invite him to church. Why am I afraid to send that text message, say, hey, you should come to church this week? It's not just that people are valuable. It's that God is actually worthy and deserving of their worship. We want Jacksonville to get saved because God deserves the praise of everything that has breath. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. God deserves it, right? He created everything, and then he enters into creation to die for the sins of man. Is he not worthy of the praise of Jacksonville? Is he not worthy of the praise of Springfield and Northside and Southside, wherever you stay? That's why we go. We don't do this because I feel guilty now on Sunday. We do this because Jesus is worth it. We do this for the glory of God, right? Jesus is the glory of God. We do this for him. So people are valuable, even our arch enemies. There's this verse that gets quoted often in the New Testament about Jesus. It says, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So they become the Ottoman. He's chilling on, on the throne." God is going to destroy every single enemy he has. But there's two ways he can do that. He can destroy you with love and mercy and make you a friend. Or he can destroy you in the fires of hell. We can sing with the band, I am a friend of God, I... We can sing that because God destroyed us. We died in Christ. He took out that heart of stone, that dead stone, and put in us a heart of flesh that loves him. Earlier, I read uh, that passage from Exodus. Could you put that up? God's definition of himself. God's definition of himself. I want you to to look at this, and what you're actually looking at is a riddle. This is a riddle. And it goes a little something like this. I'm God. I'm merciful and gracious. I'm slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Here comes the tension. But who will by no means clear the guilty... Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So the question is, how can this be so that God is merciful when every single person is is guilty? How can God do that? How can God not wipe Nineveh off the map? They did some crazy stuff. We like words like grace and mercy and throw them around. That cost a lot. It cost God his son. This passage spoken thousands of years ago, this riddle, how can God be merciful and also judge sin? How can God be perfectly righteous and holy and then yet let unholy sinners into his presence? We know the answer to this riddle comes in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this. Why was it, why was it okay for God to let Jesus die? Uh, so I've talked to a lot, of, a lot of people, and they like to argue against God by saying stuff like, Where was God when blank happened? When X fill in the blank with tragedy, right? They argue against God by by telling him, Where were you? I have a better question that should violate your sense of justice more. Why was it okay for God to let the only perfect, righteous, holy man die? Are we up in arms picketing in the streets? Are we getting our our feathers kind of ruffled over this? It's kind of a trick question because it wasn't okay if Jesus stayed dead. If Jesus had just stayed in the ground and three days became four and four days become five and we could actually go to to Israel and and see Jesus' tomb, that'd be really unjust. I'd have to say, God, you are not a just God. But what do we know? On the third day, he hopped out the grave. He hopped out the tomb, right? And God's justice is vindicated. The forgiveness of sins. Paul says, unless Jesus has been raised, you are still dead in your sins. The reason why we say, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe that God raised him from the dead, is not just because you believe a historical fact. It's because you believe that in Jesus That meant something. That meant you died on the cross. That meant you were raised with him. That means you are a new creation. That's what Paul calls us. You are a new creation in Christ. This gospel is no medicine for some sick, ailing people. It's a resurrection for dead people. It's a resurrection for a dead city, for a dead nation. The only way you can know your sins have been forgiven is if Jesus is alive. So Jesus does what Jonah and countless others have failed to do. God commissions Jesus, his beloved son, to go on a mission. Sound familiar? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, go to Nineveh. The word of the Lord actually came down in Christ. Jesus is called the word of God, John 1.1. 1, 1. The ontological word of God comes down on a mission to save the world. Whereas the word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, go to Nineveh, God says to Jesus, go to the cross and make atonement for your enemies. And Jesus doesn't front. Jesus does it. What about that promise to Abraham, right? What about being fruitful and multiply and filling the earth? Jesus actually fulfills all of this as well. See, Jesus is called the first fruits from the dead. He is the resurrection and the life, the head of a new race, the second Adam in whom the whole world will be saved. And then here's the cool part. You, Christians, are actually how God saves the world. Because he says, all authority is given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey. Christians are called salt and light in the earth, salt this preserving agent, light bringing the light of the gospel to the world. Christians are how God is saving the world. You people, Image Church, us in Jacksonville is how God wants to save the world. Whereas Adam's race could only fill the world with evil because all men were fallen, the Christian church spreads through the world and we are righteous. We are a new creation and all creation groans for the resurrection, for the day when we put on immortality and enter a new heavens and a new earth remade when there is no beef, when there is no throwing shade. When you walk in here and say, man, that person's really talented at singing and I am really actually happy for them. Genuinely, right? I'm like, oh, that rapper is a lot better than me. And I'm actually happy about it. Can you imagine how liberating that would be if I'm like, I hope that everyone is more awesome and better and glorious than I? How how liberating would that be? The pressure's off. I'm just chilling, right? So who is your Nineveh? I've been asking this over and over. Who is your Nineveh? Who's that person? Everyone knows. You know. God came a long way to save you. It's probably a much shorter distance to that person today. You need to call someone. You need to call your dad. You need to call your spouse. You need to call your kid, you need to call your brother, you call your uncle, you call that friend. The only way you can truly love your enemy is if when I say, who is your Nineveh, you say, I am Nineveh. The only way you can love your enemies is if you believe that Jesus loved his enemies. You, us, have sinned against this infinitely holy God. And we deserve to be wiped off the map ten times over like Nineveh. You have to die. And one day you will. The question is, will you die outside of Christ and go to eternal punishment? Or will you die in Christ and receive forgiveness of sin? The hope of a resurrection. Entrance into this awesome new heavens and new earth with dinosaurs flying around. I added that part. If you're not a Christian, today's the day. And if you are a Christian, today's the day to get real with God. Before we take communion... Communion is this fellowship, and we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. So before you eat and drink, I want to ask you, be reconciled with your spouse. Be reconciled with your kids, with that friend, with that Nineveh. If they're not here today, make sure you do that after service. But confess your sins lest you drink condemnation on yourself. You see, the bread we're going to eat represents the body of Jesus Christ broken on our behalf. The blood, the, 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 the juice represents the blood of Jesus spilt on our behalf. So when we take communion, you're actually coming to Jesus. We say, welcome to Jesus Christ. Ben, you can come up. If you need to be reconciled to God, if you're hearing this and realizing I don't know if I actually am a friend of God or maybe you've been harboring something some disappointment with God some frustration with him I want to read Isaiah 55 and this is what God is saying to you he's saying come everyone who thirsts come to the waters And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and God will have compassion on him to to our God, for he will abundantly pardon God will abundantly pardon. Let's pray. God, your word, it's like this sword that pierces between soul and spirit, discerning our thoughts. It's like a mirror showing us, like you showed Jonah, how irrational we've been. Counting plants more valuable than people? More valuable than you? God, we as a people confess our iniquity and our sin. And we call out like the tax collector, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, I know that healing and reconciliation needs to happen in this church amongst these people in this room. I ask that you would fill this place with grace, that Holy Spirit, you would come, that that pride that we have in our hearts that would restrain our lips would be broken off and that grace would rush in. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.